0: Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday, May 19th, 2015, and I'm coming to you from my home here in Boulder, Colorado. I'm here as always with our Daily Evolver producer, Brett Walker. How's it going tonight, Brett? Pretty good, thanks. I'm enjoying this rainy evening. Yeah, it's, uh, I think we're on our third week of it. And, uh, I wish we could send some of it to California. We're completely saturated out here. But anyway, all is well. It's a beautiful, cozy night. And, well, tonight I want to take a look at one of my favorite topics, actually, and that's pop culture. And... Ask the question, what does Judge Judy have to do with evolution? Could she, too, be good, true, and beautiful? Of course, as she reminds us herself, they don't keep me here because I'm beautiful. They keep me here because I'm smart. So that's Judge Judy. We'll get into that in a minute. But before we do, I want to thank you all for joining me at our new home here on Integral Radio. And thank you to Corey DeVos and the gang over at Integral Life, which is the host of Integral Radio and is the leading internet hub for the worldwide integral community. And if you're not a member of Integral Life, I really would encourage you to consider becoming a member. It's well worth the monthly fee, less than $10 a month, um, really the latest and greatest stuff, a great community on there, and of course, the home for Ken Wilber and his latest work, so check it out. And you can also find more of my work on my personal blog, thedailyevolver.com, or I guess it's just dailyevolver.com, where I post all of these live podcasts and anything else that catches my eye or Brett's eye, or also interviews with other cool people. And tonight actually is the last episode of this spring season for the Daily Evolver Live. And we'll be taking a hiatus where, again, we'll continue to post weekly at least uh, with interviews and so forth. But we'll be back uh, on Tuesday night, July 7th, for the new summer season of the Daily Evolver Live. So check us out then. The key mission for this work is to use the integral lens to help understand current events, politics, culture, spirituality, etc., and to use current events to help understand integral theory. To that end, I have some charts and graphs on my blog that you might want to look at, even as I'm talking tonight. And Brett will link to those on the chat screen of Integral Radio. And if you're listening to this later, you can find these. If you go to dailyevolver.com and click on the theory tab on the home page, and you can take a look at... Couple charts. One is the levels of development, which are important, and also the quadrants of reality. And these are based on, of course, Ken Wilber's famous Aqua maps, uh, integral Aqua maps. All right. I think I want to start tonight by sharing a question that I think really introduces us to the topic of pop culture in, in a strange way. Uh, And it's uh, an email question I got from one of our listeners, Ryan Hawk, and he writes, Hey, Jeff, I'd be very interested in having you address the emerging maturity, he puts it in quotes, maturity that people are manifesting in their lives. In the circles I find myself, I've noticed a growing population of people who are learning to take full responsibilities for their interior worlds their thoughts, their feeling, their worldviews, etc., and in so doing are creating healthier and more holistic exterior lives, that is, relationships and culture and so forth. He goes on to say, is it fair to say that the evolution of the interior domains is the precursor to the development and evolution of the other three quadrants? That's a little bit of a technical question, but I'll get into it. He says, richest blessings, Ryan. Okay, Ryan. Well, there are two issues, really, that you raise here. The first one is this idea of that there are people now with a new level of maturity. And you say, in the circles I find myself, I've noticed growing population, people who are willing to take full responsibility for their interior worlds and are in so doing are creating healthier and more holistic exterior lives. And I think that's absolutely true. And this is, of course, a, a phenomena of, of, of consciousness evolution itself. We are witnessing a large number of people now uh, who have attained what we would call an observing consciousness, a witness consciousness in their lives. And this is something that comes with meditation And for some people, it just comes naturally. It's just the nature of growing up and waking up. And what you see when you develop this observing witness consciousness is that you are able to really see instead of be your feelings and your thoughts and your actions. You're able to get a little bit of distance between what you're able to do and what you're able to see. And the bigger your observing consciousness gets, the more you're able to include in your circle of caring, and the more mature you are. So I, like you, Ryan, I see more and more people who are able to live this more emotionally mature life, where they're less reactive to their own thoughts and feelings, and more responsive, if you will. Now, again, this is not necessarily new, although I do think it's new in terms of percentages and in terms of the center of gravity of the leading edge of human populations. But it's always been found among what we would call wise people throughout history, W-I-S-E, wise people. And I think of people I knew in my life as a child, my great-grandmother my Aunt Frances, my dad in a certain way. They're less self-concerned, not in a neurotic way. They're not codependent and and they're not passive. They take, uh, you know, pride in themselves and they have a lot of volition. But they are more concerned about other people and not in a way that is, as Trump or Rinpoche would call Where they're using idiot compassion, which is the compassion that, for instance, gives whiskey to an alcoholic. But they're operating out of a mature compassion that helps people see what's good for them, even if they don't necessarily see it or want it themselves. And again, I do think we're finding greater populations of these people. And what's even more astonishing to me is that we're finding qualities like this this kind of wisdom even in young people, even teenagers and young adults. And I don't think they're necessarily evenly developed. Uh, that is, they're not, you know, at a what we would call second tier or integral stage across the board. But they do have a high level of awareness and consciousness. So I think that's right. The second part of your question is also interesting and I think will help us get into the larger topic tonight you say, I'll I'll repeat it, you say, is it fair to say that the evolution of the interior domains, that is the left-hand side of the quadrants, is the precursor to, to the development of the evolution in the exterior quadrants? In other words, one of the tenets of integral theory is that we are evolving in all four quadrants. And to make that simple, we will say that we are evolving in Really, three domains. We we collapse two of them, uh, the right-hand quadrants, into this third, to this other thing, and we call it the first person, second person, and third person. So we're evolving as individual human beings. I'm evolving in terms of my own consciousness and what I'm able to see and care for and act upon. I'm evolving in terms of my second person, that is my relationships, and in terms of the culture at large. And we're evolving in terms of third person or in terms of uh, technology and the systems of the world. All of those are evolving. And if we look at history, your, your question is, does one domain, that is first person, second person, or third person, does that lead the way necessarily? And we see that if we look at history, that different domains have led the way At different times in history. For instance, when we look at the rise of modernity, and the rise of modernity started in maybe the 1500s, 1600s for sure, and at that point, leading-edge people began to realize that life could be understood through observation and experimentation, that life wasn't understood necessarily in terms of religion and the holy book. And it took a long time for that kind of thinking to really gain traction. So we would say that modernity arose from a first-person perspective. That led the way. It was consciousness. As Ken Wilber points out, people thought modern thoughts for 300 years before the French Revolution. In other words, they thought about it for 300 years before they actually acted on it. But you can also see, if you look at it, that there were second-person dimensions as well. There were modern societies, the Freemasons and Rosicrucians and so forth. And then there was also a third-person dimension of evolution happening here, and that is technology. These early scientists developed telescopes and navigation tools and maps and so forth that really helped them to move the ball forward. So, although we can say that modernity led through first person, second and third person were also really interpenetrated there. So, let's look at postmodernity. Postmodernity is generally seen as arising mainly in terms of the culture or the second person dimension. And I think that's true. Although we saw early postmodern thinking, in people like Oscar Wilde and H.L. Mencken and even Mark Twain. It wasn't until the counterculture movement that began in the 50s with the beatniks and reached full flourishing with the Beatles and sex drugs and rock and roll and, you know, the the cultural revolution or the countercultural revolution of the 60s and 70s. You can also see it involved First person dimensions, such as psychedelics. Psychedelic drugs were very important to the arising of the counterculture. Plus, just general relativistic and sensitivity in thinking, also very, very important. These are first person dimensions. So, you know, second person culture led the way, but also first person and then third person too. We can also see how the cultural revolution of postmodernity. Was aided by mass communication, particularly television, and also birth control. So, when we try to tease apart which of the dimension leads the way in our evolution, we can see some things. Uh, but ultimately, there's a—it's—it's it's what the Buddhists talk about as dependent origination. This needs that, as they say, in order to exist. Everything else needs to exist. I always love Nhat Hans' uh, term that things are interpenetrated; that one thing cannot exist without the other. So, with that said, with us seeing that modernity came in with first person consciousness leading the way, that postmodernity came in with second person or culture leading the way, how is integral coming into the world? And we can see that clearly first person is playing a role. There's the maturity that you were talking about, Ryan, earlier, uh, where we stop identifying as we move from first to second tier. We stop identifying with any single perspective, and we start to identify with the space within which Perspectives are arising. And consciousness itself begins to be friendly with this perspective and that perspective. And this is a major leap and a major expansion of our first person identity and consciousness. And that's a marker for integral. We also see that there is a big second person dimension as people move into integral. There is a growing population of people, those of us on the call tonight, people listening to Integral Life and, you know, countless websites and people connected all over the world. This didn't exist 10, 15 years ago. There was no integral community. And there is a thriving and growing integral community now. And these are people who are learning to take full responsibility for their interior worlds, just as you wrote Uh, In your note, uh, Ryan, their thoughts and feelings and worldviews, they realize that they are created, that they can see them instead of be them. And in so doing, they're creating healthier and more capable lives, relationships, and so forth. And so that's the second person. But I'd have to also say that the major engine of evolution as we move into the integral stage of development is coming mainly from the third person. That amazing world of communication and transportation, this new matrix, this new virtual juggernaut of reality created through television and and the internet and all of social media, all of the ways that we, you know, stick our nose into everybody else's business. This is really the, you know, great engine of what's helping us move into the integral world. What we're seeing today with our media slash virtual world is that it now covers the whole developmental spectrum and it is absolutely pervasive. I mean, I've always heard the shocking statistic that people spend four or five hours a day watching television. Well, that's now quaint. The new research shows, in fact, there's a new study released by the USC uh, School of Business where it says it's estimated that Americans will consume both traditional and digital media for over 15 hours per person per day in 2015. That's astonishing. That's only nine hours where we're not plugged in. I think that's maybe high. But maybe it isn't. I mean, if I think of my life and my days, I may hit 15 hours, um, you know, pretty regularly. And unlike, you know, a lot of social critics, I don't think this is necessarily bad news. You know, what we're doing is we're getting a window on the world. We're getting connections to each other. It's not a waste of, I I'd worry if people were playing tiddlywinks, but instead they're you know, like sponges absorbing this beautiful, big, wide world that exists for all of us in all four quadrants. So from an integral perspective, we can see that there is media that is lighting up and magnetizing people at every stage of development. And I just want to hit uh, the high points of of a few of them because I just really think that it's interesting and, and very, very potent. And so here uh, we'll get back to Judge Judy. And I don't know how many of you know Judge Judy, particularly people outside of the U.S., but she's the number one rated daytime show here in the United States. Uh, she's hugely popular for 19 years now and still going strong. Judge Judy just extended her contract another three years, uh, and she's now making $47 million a year for 52 days of work per year. And that's $903,000 per day. Now, Judge Judy is really Judith Scheinland. She's a real judge from the New York family court system. And now she is, and for the last 19 years, she is holding court both literally and figuratively, out of a television studio in Hollywood. She deals mainly in small claims, dog bites, wrecked property, late rent, people borrowing money and not paying it back, you know, the regular small claims thing. And it's real. And we all know the intro to Judge Judy. Do, you, do Brett, do you know the intro to Judge Judy? No. This is the courtroom of Judge Judith Scheinland, the people are real. The cases are real. The rulings are final. There are a lot of people who are listening who know that by heart. And, uh, it's, um, and so, you know, these are real cases. These are people who bring in real problems and, and she adjudicates them. Why is she so popular? Because she kicks ass. And from an integral perspective, what she's doing is she civilizing people who are at red, who are at the egocentric level of development. And it's it's over and over. I don't know how they pick these people, you know, what their process is. But these are true believing egocentric people for the most part who appear on this show. And they're people who have a very difficult time taking the perspective of other people. So they come in just sure that they're right about their case. They have a story. They want to tell it. It may be long. It may be convoluted. But the ending is assured. They have been done wrong by this other person. We all do this to a degree. We all have our red self. I tell myself stories all day long about how I deserve whatever it is that I want. I don't just want it. I deserve it. And if I'm not getting it, something's not fair and somebody's to blame. And, you know, so fortunately for the most part, I don't live in that world. I notice it when I do, but there was a time when I was, that was the extent of my world when I was at red moving into Amber. And that's the case. That's where, that's the sweet spot where judge Judy does her work. And so as with, All good civilizers have read, she uses intimidation as a skillful means. She'll have grown adults confused and trembling like an eight-year-old in front of the headmaster. And she wants answers. She doesn't want, you know, storyline. She doesn't want people's justification. And when people stumble and get tongue-tied, she upbraids them. You know, she doesn't want any poor me stories. The other day I was watching it, and there was a woman who had... This is an oft-told story on Judge Judy. It's a woman who gave money, lent money, she said, to a man she was interested in. And he clearly strung her along and got money for her over several months. She gave him over $4,000. And she's pleading to Judge Judy, I'm a single mother. I need that money back for my children. And Judge Judy responds, Don't single mother me, madam. You gave this bum $4,000 of your children's college fund. I'm not sympathetic with you. Now, she ended up ruling in the woman's favor, but the woman and millions of other vulnerable women out there learned an important lesson about where their true power lies. This is what Judge Judy does. You just can't win in any kind of a power struggle with her. God forbid you should make a face or roll your eyes. The other day, she said this to a a, a man. She said, I don't know whether you took a courage pill this morning or whether you're just basically arrogant, Mr. Spencer, but I want to tell you something. I'm the only person in this room who gets to have an attitude. You look at me. Don't look away. Look at me. Um is not an answer. Just tell me what happened. Um, She's Always upbraiding these people and bringing them back to full attention. And attention is on her. And you don't want to get cute or casual or funny with her either. Uh, She'll remind you that, Mr. Brown, I am not your friend. I'm the judge. Or she'll, you know, she insults them just as easily. Did you have a basic IQ test before you got here this morning? She asked one plaintiff last week. And of course, at that point, the audience will laugh and she'll even turn on them and yell, shush. She's not looking for laughs. She's looking to get the truth of what's going on. And that's what makes her so powerful is that she's like a laser going after truth and not concerned at all about your feelings about the matter. It's like I said, it's keeping people nervous. It's keeping people fearful. And it is behavior worthy of a warlord or a James Bond villain or a a mafia enforcer. Everyone is riveted on her in this show. It's really amazing. Uh, She's capricious. She's cruel. She'll lead you down the garden path only to turn on you. And this is red behavior. This is what warlords do. And the result is millions of people are indeed riveted. I've watched the show for years and millions of people learn and grow how to move out of red. Judge Judy is offering a huge public service in a couple ways. One is on the most basic level, it's a study in the legal system and small claims court. I always wondered why in high school, we never learned anything about the court systems and you know, how to take somebody to court and all of this stuff It was also abstract. And I've learned so much more about how the courts really work and about the law itself, watching Judge Judy than from any other case or from any other source. But the second thing is far more important. And that is that Judge Judy is offering a great lesson in development for people who like so many of the people who come into her court, have not organized themselves into being sensitive, productive citizens. And in front of Judge Judy, people learn that their egocentric stories don't hold water, that other people have a story too, and sometimes theirs is the right one. Remember, developmentally, red is always fighting. But they're not necessarily looking to win. I mean, they are. But the next best thing to winning for somebody at Red is to decisively lose. It's kind of like having a group or a pack of dogs. They're just looking for where the power lies. Who's the alpha dog? If it's me, okay, I could be alpha dog. If it's not me, okay, I can be uh, beta dog. You could be alpha dog. It's like, I don't have a great preference, but I need to know either win or lose. And so when people are in the presence of the alpha red, then, you know, this is the stronger force. They're more likely to surrender. And that is a great entree or initiation into the next stage, which is amber. That's surrendering to a stronger force. It's a basic move of amber. Maybe I'm not so strong. Maybe I'm not so powerful. Maybe I need to cast my lot with this person or with, you know, in the case of moving into mature Amber, with God or with this this transcendent religious principle. And that gets us to uh, another one of the cultural touchstones that is really fascinating to me. And that's Dr. Phil who is also extremely successful, has been on for, I don't know how many years now, but number one talk show on American daytime television. And, well, I'll give you Judge Judy's introduction to Dr. Phil. (laughs) This was one of the Judge Judy's I watched last week. Uh, There was this car salesman who had sold a lemon to this, you know, mother and her child. It was a sad story. And he was talking about how bad he felt about the car breaking down right after he sold it, and he was trying to be a good guy. And Judge Judy says, I don't care whether you felt bad. Your feelings are irrelevant to me, sir. Dr. Phil cares about your feelings, but I have no care for your feelings. (laughs) And I think that's a pretty accurate assessment. Dr. Phil does, as Judge Judy said, uh, pay attention to and makes it his business to be interested in your feelings. So he won't tell the woman who lent money to a con man that she was stupid. He'll try and show her that she's better than that, that she doesn't need a man to make her whole, that love isn't a feeling. It's a decision that mature people make about how and with whom they are going to share their lives. And above all, Dr. Phil, teaches that you are not a victim, that you are not a loser, that you deserve respect, that you teach people how to treat you. It's a whole other order of transmission from what uh, Judge Judy's doing. And it's a lesson not so much in terms of right and wrong, but in terms of personal empowerment. You are somebody. You are powerful. And this is, you know, part of the pattern or substrate of evolution itself. We move from evolution in the, this is one of the tenets of integral theory is we move from uh, our gross bodies or our physical bodies. And that's, you know, eating and safety and who's right and who's wrong, who's innocent, who's guilty. That's Judge Judy. And then we move to the subtle realm or the mental realm, the the realm of thinking and feelings. And this is the realm of Dr. Phil and so much of television, so much of, of sitcom and entertainment. They're all little morality plays about how to feel and how to relate with other people. And then we move from the gross physical, subtle, mental to the causal or the spiritual realm. And this is uh, the realm where we're getting into, if we're talking altitudes, we're talking green and into integral. When we get into the green stage of development, I think one of the great exemplars there is Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, who, of course, you know, how could you be more popular than Oprah, particularly uh, when she was doing her network show? Now she's doing her network. She's a little less visible, but she's still very, very much in the game. With her magazine and so forth, and her message is well. It, it sort of has evolved itself. She started with basic self improvement, you know, weight loss, relationship advice. In fact, she launched Dr. Phil. She had Dr. Phil in her show, and and then you know launched his show. And you know this idea that we see in uh, you know a lot of uh, self actualization material. Uh, you just have to believe. In yourself. You can create your best self. Uh, so it starts with self-improvement, but it ends with self-acceptance. You know, Oprah, despite all of her, you know, I don't know, scores of weight loss shows, actually never was able to lose weight. And she then came to accept herself and now she's at her ideal weight and so forth. It's a story we all lived if we watched her. And then she even moved now into, you know, more overt spiritual territory, such as, you know, we talked about self-improvement, self-acceptance. Now she's into self-awareness. One of the people that she's promoting these days is Eckhart Tolle, who wrote The Power of Now. And it's one of the things that makes Eckhart Tolle so popular is that he's giving the basic principles of the non-dual spiritual path, which is basically his one instruction is just wake up to this present moment right now. And he hits that over and over and over again, and it drops all of the baggage of the spiritual traditions and is very, very powerful and has been very, very powerful for a lot of people I know who really had no interest or didn't think they did in the non-dual spiritual traditions. Now, people who are, you know, like my Buddhist friends and, and, and people who are more serious doctrinaire meditators sometimes sneer at this kind of um, enlightenment light, they call it. But I think it's very, very powerful. And it's how these ideas move into the culture. Um, who cares if, you know, the yoga studio down the street is doctrinally accurate if they are getting people to wake up to their own bodies and their subtle bodies and their energy bodies. Uh, You know, this happens. It's a mess. You know, it's the catastrophe of evolution. But there is a structure to it that is discernible and is, again, always moving to greater awareness, consciousness, and capability. As I said, these are really uh, powerful cultural transmitters. All of these shows, all of the stuff that we're looking at on um, television, the internet, and virtual space, uh, digital media. Um, I was fascinated by a a story that, uh, Brett, you sent me actually a couple days ago about how the dissidents in North Korea, the ones who have, have escaped North Korea or in South Korea, Are using Western media as their major weapon uh, against North Korea. And it's not like they're showing the world the horrors of the North Korean police state. They're actually dedicated to showing North Koreans the peace, prosperity, and basically the lifestyles of the rest of the world. So there are scores of, the organi- of these organizations in North Korea that are funded in the millions of dollars whose job it is to smuggle USB drives of sitcoms like Friends and Desperate Housewives and CDs that they're sending in on balloons of Western movies. Because when the North Koreans see the rest of the world the fantasy that the propaganda that has been uh, generated by the you know kim dynasty in north korea just evaporates and they realize wait a second we're not the only civilized country in the world which is of course the propaganda that they're getting and that people outside of this world they were talking about that when north korean's watch these sitcoms they're you know they're watching the show and they're getting the message of you know, friends, but they're also watching in in slow motion and rewinding just to see what's on the shelves in the supermarkets, what people have in their living rooms. They're just, people are fascinated by each other and the rest of the world. So that's what we get for 15 hours a day. And these are very, very powerful cultural transmitters. And then the last one I wanted to point out, I mentioned Judge Judy moves people from red into amber, and Dr. Phil moves people from amber into orange, and Oprah moves people from orange into green. And I think there are some shows that move people from green into integral. And one of them is the show Mad Men, which had its season finale, the last show of the last season. This last Sunday night and this will be a little bit of a spoiler alert so if you haven't seen it you might want to turn off your sound for the next couple minutes it was a fascinating show and the fast an end to a really really powerful uh, serial drama and it's the story of Don Draper who was a New York City ad man in the 60s it started during the Kennedy administration he's in New York City mad men Madison Avenue men and Don is smart, he's charismatic, he's creative, he's good-looking, for sure. He's played by John Hamm, for God's sakes. But <laughs> he's not your conventional hero. He has a secret past, he's from the Korean War, Had a horrible childhood, and uh, he's amoral in a sense. He's ruthless in business, he's a cad with women, he's a terrible husband and father, Uh, But over six years and six seasons of the show, we've seen him and America move through the decade of the 60s. From the Kennedy administration through the Kennedy assassination, the Vietnam War, the um, race riots, the upheaval of the late 60s, assassinations of Martin Luther King and, and Bobby Kennedy. And at the end of the show, we're in the early 70s now, 1971, and Don Draper goes west to a new culture in California, as so many of us did. And here he experiences at Esalon, or something like Esalon, which is the New Age um, retreat center at Big Sur in California. He experiences the power of getting in touch with his feelings at an encounter group, and doing meditation, and it's just amazing. He has this cathartic experience with another man at an encounter group, and the other man's talking about how he feels, feels invisible and what's his life worth and um, is, is, you know, talking honestly about his fears of not being loved or lovable, and it just touches this Don Draper, and he hugs him and he cries. It's a magnificent scene. And, um, and then the very last scene is that he is sitting in meditation overlooking the, um, with a group, overlooking the Pacific Ocean in, in um, Big Sur. And he has this spiritual awakening. And he um, smiles. That's the last moment is that this, his face turns into a smile And then it moves to the iconic commercial for Coca-Cola. I'd like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. We all know that song. I mean, those of us who of a certain age. And this is a move to world centrism. This is a move, big move into green. So Don, who is the exemplar of orange, make money, sell stuff, you know, keep the uh, wheels of commerce turning now moves into this bigger world-centric uh, move of I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony I'd like to buy the world a coke and keep it company now a lot of people saw this a lot of critics saw this as a cynical ending of the show I was watching Joe Scarborough this morning and he said it was he was a big fan of the show he talked about the show a lot he had Matt Weiner who's the Uh, producer and writer of the show, on uh, his show a lot. And he was very disappointed. He he thought that Don Draper took a spiritual experience and just turned it into a Coke ad. Um, As he said, this is a TV commercial that uses the ideals of world peace and human connection to sell gas-filled sugar water. Well, that's one way to look at it. Uh, One of the other critics said that Don is responsible for harnessing all the 60s idealism into corporate profits, the precursor to today's odious Bobos in Paradise. And of course, The Bobos in Paradise is a book by David Brooks, one of my least favorite writings from David Brooks, who I normally like. But he talks about how bourgeois capitalists use hippie values in this bohemian counterculture. Well, they have $15,000 showers and, you know, this kind of stuff. Uh, And, you know, there's a critique there. And there's, there's certainly a critique to how Mad Men ended. But I'd say that Don has evolved like a lot of us did. And that sometimes enlightenment arrives in the guise of a television commercial. I literally remember seeing that television commercial and being thrilled and being expanded you know, instead of this is the Pepsi generation and you're going to look good and everybody's going to be having fun. All of a sudden, I wanted to buy the world a Coke. I didn't really. I mean, the Coke was not that important, but I wanted to have the world sing in perfect harmony. And that was a, for for me in 1970, I was a junior in high school. Uh, It was a big deal. In fact, I remember that our high school choir uh, performed that song. I think we, Uh, Took the Coke part out. And I think there might have been a song there without the Coke part. But uh, we performed that. And it was a crowd pleaser, I must say. So um, I think I'd uh, read a a little bit of a more positive critique that I uh, appreciated and agree with. It's from the website Vox, V-O-X, written by Todd Vanderwerf. He talked about how uh, Matthew Weiner, the uh, you know creator of the show, gave every single one of the show's seven major characters a moment to shine in this last uh, episode. And he did. It basically went from character to character and closed out their story. And he said that, you know, that even if these characters aren't currently living their best life, that they might have a chance doing so. That's an integral view, you know, that people have a chance to live their best life. Uh, and if they do, they'll take it. He writes, imagine for a moment that the whole show was about Leonard. And Leonard is the guy who Don hugged at the Encounter Group. And he said, the man who Don, Don comforts. Imagine that the show was where Leonard drifts through a whole decade feeling like he's ignored, unnoticed, slowly coming apart. That is, in some ways, the story of Don. But this is not a man who possesses Don's glamour and suave handsomeness. He is instead just some guy out on the edges of life waiting for things to make sense. The genius of madmen is how it suggests that everybody is that way, no matter how much they seem like they have it together. Don Draper's central flaw, that he constructs a persona that he thinks covers up his bruised, aching self, is the flaw all of us share. We all suspect people can see our worst selves, that they might push us away if they found out who we really are. There are millions of stories just like this, behind the locked doors of houses we pass on late-night walks, sitting in the cars we find ourselves idling beside on the freeway. This is a big planet and a big country, filled with so many people and so many stories, but really one story, that of searching endlessly for someone who will see us and understand us and know us and not look away. And that, this is me talking again, that's shadow work. That is um, a beautiful transmission of integral consciousness, that we are beyond the brokenness that we all have, and that we all fear that other people will see, that there is an updraft of eros, of emergence, that is taking us to more good, true, and beautiful territory. So that's a look at some of the media. I mean, God knows there's millions of nodes and shows and websites that we can look at. What we're interested in tells us a lot about who we are and what we have to learn. But the postmodern and the post-postmodern Media establishment, both traditional and digital media, gives everybody what they need to move forward. And, you know, as these, you know, numbers show us of 11, 15 hours a day, whatever it is, we're we're watching, we're paying attention. All right. Uh, Corey is writing, I see here. I think the recent Mad Max film is a wonderful example of what Jeff is talking about, particularly how seemingly lower altitudes can be a carrier wave for higher altitude messages. I haven't seen that. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. I remember for the the original Mad Max films, just a uh, glorified, in, in the best sense of the word, red story of just brutality and and, and, and might makes right and all that good stuff. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Corey said, in this case, it's a diesel and testosterone-soaked love letter to feminism, not the expected medium for that message. Wow. Yeah, I definitely want to see it. Check it out, Mad Max. Yeah, Fury Road. Fury Road. All right, well, I think we're closing up here for tonight and for the season. Uh, I would encourage any of you who are interested to check out a couple things. These are a couple things that actually I'll be working on over the next month while uh, the live show's on hiatus. One is the Integral Escalator, which is a program that I'll be doing with Steve McIntosh and Brooke McNamara um, that will be held at the Integral Center August 13th through 16th. And uh, you can check out what we're doing there. This is going to be for a small group. It's fairly academic. And it's, you know, about how to um, explore and take up residency in this new integral wave of consciousness. So that's the integral escalator. It's an experiment in the evolution of consciousness. There we go. Perfect. And, um, And the other one is the integral living room, which is being held October 29th through November 2nd, so a little later. And that is a program that I'll, I'll be doing also at the Integral Center here in Boulder uh, with uh, Diane Hamilton and Terry Patton, who are arriving here tomorrow, and we're going to do a couple days of, um, of working on that. And the Integral Living Room this time is on integral soul work in working with, I've talked about how uh, one, one of the evolutionary views that we have is that we move from <clears throat> our physical bodies to our energy bodies, to our causal or spiritual bodies that these are, you know, eventually what to have, we want to have all three bodies fully online. And this is about working on particularly the second, the, the energy bodies or the subtle bodies, the soul body, and also the spiritual body as well. So, Diane and Terry are both coming off of a vision quest that they did uh, a few weeks ago that um, I'll be interested in hearing about it. I declined. Um, (laughs) So I'm feeling a little guilty about that, but you know, that's all good life, good fun. All right. So any other questions, comments? I hear the music coming on. I don't think so. All right. Cool, man. So thanks, folks. Uh, uh, Thanks for listening to the Daily Evolver Live. We'll be back again Tuesday night, July 7th. This is Jeff Salzman signing off.